Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis today with a message entitled Navigating Crisis. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 to 13, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Some time ago, I remember hearing of a person who came to faith on Sunday morning, but claimed to have lost his faith by Monday evening. He encountered his first crisis as a sign that there is actually no God. Now, in contrast, many of you have heard of Eric Liddell. He was the Scottish athlete who became famous for winning the men's 400 meters at the Olympic Games in 1924, held in Paris. Liddell went on to become a missionary to China, and his life was immortalized in the film Chariots of Fire. Liddell's missionary career was one filled with terrible suffering. He, in fact, died young because of the rigors he faced in China in his service to Christ. Those who were left to mourn him said that they were stunned by the loss. Here's what Eric Liddell wrote about crisis. He said, circumstances may appear to wreck our lives in God's plans, but God is not helpless among the ruins. Our broken lives are not lost or useless. God comes in and takes the calamity and uses it victoriously, working out his wonderful plan of love. Two different responses to crisis. One abandons faith, another sees the wonderful plan of God. Today, as we continue our series entitled Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, we come to a passage of scripture I've entitled Navigating Crisis. We're going to encounter Isaac and Rebekah in their time of crisis. So here I'm reading Genesis 26 verses 1 to 13. It says, Now there was a famine in the land beside the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed." because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. I know that we living in the Western world hardly have any idea of how terrifying the word famine is. But it is a terrible word that opens up our chapter. Famine means widespread malnutrition, starvation, is often accompanied by disease and the regular occurrence of death. 
death becomes common and life becomes unbearably cheap. I remember many years ago finding a film entitled, And When They Shall Ask. It detailed the story of the suffering of the Mennonite people in Russia. And I sat down to watch it with my parents. And in one scene, my mom just gasped. The movie brought back her personal memories, things that she had never told us. She said they were fleeing from Russia. And she remembered as a young woman following an ox cart. And her hunger-swollen legs were rubbing against each other as she walked. She remembered the terror, the overwhelming hunger, and then wondered how she could possibly survive. See, for most of us, reading Genesis 26 is simply, we don't understand the blackness of the words famine. These words speak loudly of a crisis that could sweep Isaac and Rebekah's family away and all the hope of the blessings of Abraham. Those of you who know the book of Genesis remember that Abraham, that is Isaac's father, had faced a very similar crisis soon after entering Canaan and that Abraham had, in a desperate act of survival, gone to Egypt. Because of the annual inundation of the Nile, Egypt was safe from famine, and Isaac now plans to do the same. Now, Isaac at this time is living in Beersheba, and even though that probably doesn't mean a lot to us, we read in verse 1 that he goes to Gerar. Well, Egypt lay to the south, and Gerar is in fact along the Mediterranean Sea. It's to the west. So why Isaac went there? Well, we don't know. It seems plausible to me that he may have had some cattle and servants there, and he goes to pick them up and then gets them ready to flee to Egypt. If there's a crisis, Isaac will take all the steps necessary to flee to Egypt. He, he's going to save his life and the lives of his family, his servants and his cattle. And so he arrives in Gerar, and I assume to pick up everyone who belongs to him. Now, here's where the crisis deepens. Verse 2 tells us that God spoke to him and forbade him from going to the safety of Egypt. And before I go any further, I need to stop here and notice something we might miss as easily as we miss the word famine. See, it doesn't say God spoke to Isaac, but it says the Lord appeared to Isaac. Several places in Genesis in which this is a record of a direct appearance of God. You remember that Adam and Eve encountered God. God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But that was before sin entered into the human race. And then afterward, the presence of God becomes distant and it's hard to find so that people become confused about who God actually is. But three times in the life of Abraham, God actually appeared to him. It happens again twice to Isaac and later it happens once to Jacob. But what do we make of this? Well, if you listen to Exodus 30, verse 20, it says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. How do we square that statement with this extraordinary statement in one line? That here in Isaac's account, it simply mentions that God appeared to him. And the answer, I think, is found in John's gospel. It's found in John 1, verse 18. It says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Well, we come to the heart of the mystery of the Trinity. It is the Father that no one has seen, but the Son, who is himself the only God. Yeah, says John, that one, he who is the one true God, in is at the Father's side. Yeah, that one, he has made him known or explained him or interpreted him to us. Now, what the Bible teaches is that Jesus is the revelation of God. When Jesus became a man, he never stopped being God, but the fullness of his glory was veiled behind a curtain of human flesh. 
So from this, I come to a conclusion. While famine is raging in the land and Isaac is making preparations to save his family, Jesus, I assume in his pre-incarnate form, appeared to Isaac. This is Isaac's moment of encounter. His father Abraham has had three of these encounters, and now Isaac's father's story now becomes his own. Exactly what Isaac saw and how he responded and how he felt, well, God has decided not to tell us, but it is what Jesus said to him, and we're told that the words were devastating. Don't you go to Egypt, you stay right here. See, Isaac knew how to deal with crisis, but if he obeys the word of Christ, he will be launched into a crisis he can't control. I wonder if he thought about Rebekah and his two sons and the lives of everyone who depended upon him. I wonder if Isaac was devastated to hear this command. But with this command comes three very important promises. Here's the first. God says, I will be with you. And in those words, Isaac must have asked himself, will that be enough? Is that going to put bread on my table? Now comes Christ's second promise to Isaac. I will bless you. You won't just survive. You'll look back on these days and they will be remembered not for their hardship, but for how well I treated you. And then the third promise, a promise so great and grand that Isaac needed some time to consider it. God said, everything I promised Abraham, the land, the great nation, the multitude of descendants, that he would be the source of blessing to the whole earth, all of that, I'm giving it to you. And then God adds something, because Abraham obeyed me when I spoke to him. And that's what I'm expecting of you now. It's an obedience of faith because you have to know if you obey me, you'll have to trust me in this famine thing right now. And so verse 6 says something absolutely splendid. Isaac settled in Gerar. It's a great verse. It's a powerful verse of faith. This is the story of how men and women became great and the mighty men and women of God. It comes in simple obedience to the command of God. So you might remember that I said that Isaac often looks like a man who lacks leadership, but I still contend that's true, but not here. Here he leads. Here he looks like one of the great giants of the faith. Sarah wrote, Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life with depth, practicality, challenge, and hope. The world has changed. Technology has made everything closer. Ministries have changed, and yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching and has embraced technology, all while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. You know, messages like this help us feel like we're hitting the mark. And with God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Our special thanks to all those who listen and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement and commitment means so much. You can join us in this effort with your financial support by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca. to think about what we've just learned. Obedience to God creates a crisis, or at least obedience to God in the short term, will most often make life more difficult, not less so. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're a businessman and your business is such that your competitors have a practice of not showing the full amount of taxes, and because you are, you feel you can't compete. 
Obedience to Romans 13, which demands that you pay taxes, is creating a crisis for you. Or since we're talking about money, some of you might say obedience in tithing. Well, it's creating a crisis that I wouldn't have if I weren't tithing. Let me give you other examples. Some of you right now are in a difficult marriage, and you won't leave for one reason. The Word of God has told you to stay. That's created a crisis. Some of you right now are struggling to get into a program at school for a career, and you're in competition with others, and others are cheating, but you won't because God demands honesty and truth and righteousness from you. And in all your dealings, that has created a crisis. I give you hundreds of examples of just the same thing, some mundane, some more dramatic, and the point is simply this. God deliberately gives us commands that create crisis. And some of you are going through a crisis that only exists because you've been obedient to your Lord. So let's look at it closely. God's revelation of himself has drawn you to him. It did for Isaac. Second, your obedience to your Savior has tested your faith in him. See, here's the mystery of our faith. How can God draw us by his kindness and then bring us to the point of crisis? But he does, and he does it deliberately. So please hear me. This is not just the story of Isaac. This is the story of God's normal dealings with his people. But you might say, oh Lord, why would you call me to that? Why is obedience so costly? Why does obedience crush me? Why does obedience leave me so vulnerable and looking like a fool before the watching world? So are you ready? Here's the answer. Crisis often defines our character. Crisis will show you what and who you really are. You'll never know the state of your own soul when all is peaceful. God knows the state of your own soul, but he wants to show you your own soul. And sometimes what we see is a crisis of its own. So let's move to verses 6 and 7. Isaac arrives in Gerar, and the men of that place take notice of Rebekah. They see she's beautiful, and Isaac fears for his life and says, she's my sister. So here's a little history lesson. The king in Gerar is a man named Abimelech. And interestingly enough, if you go back to Genesis 20, you'll find Abraham encountering Abimelech some 70 to 80 years earlier. This is not the same Abimelech. It seems likely to me that Abimelech is a royal name. It's a title. So if you will, this is Abimelech II. But here's my point. 80 years ago, Abraham lied to Abimelech I for fear of his wife being so beautiful. Now, now Abraham and Abimelech are long dead. And here now you have Abraham's son and Abimelech's son, and they repeat history. The same thing unfolds. Isaac has learned from his father's sin, and he repeats them. So now Abimelech looks out of his window, and he sees Isaac and Rebekah laughing. Well, the NIV says that Isaac was caressing Rebekah. Now, whenever you see two translations translating one word so differently, you know that it must be a difficult word to translate. So the Hebrew word here means to play or to sport or to amuse or to entertain. The idea is that whatever Abimelech saw, he saw them involved in some form of intimate play or intimate laughter with each other, and he knew in a second, ah, this is Isaac's wife. Now, I know that today in our culture, all sorts of men and women flirt, and it doesn't necessarily mean marriage, but Abimelech understands that when there's a man of God like Isaac, he doesn't behave that way. And he also remembers that his father almost encountered disaster from God and brought guilt and condemnation on his kingdom because of Abraham's lies and Abraham's acts. 
So here now is a pagan king lecturing a man of God on morality. And he says, what have you done? And as we've read, Isaac seems to have nothing to say. Yeah, I've said that crisis defines our character, and it certainly did for Isaac. Could Isaac trust that God would protect him? Or did he need to lie to protect himself? Isaac fails the test. Do you know that courage is a virtue and cowardice is a vice? It was courage that led Jesus to the cross. It was cowardice that caused Peter to deny his Savior. Let's be honest. Some of you are not today doing what Christ called you to do because you're afraid. There's no virtue in being a coward. Second test is the test of Isaac's integrity. And as we've seen, Isaac not only failed the test of courage, he failed the test of integrity. He was found to be a bold-faced liar. He lied when it suited him. You know, Jesus once said of Satan that he's the father of lies. And whenever you or I lie, we're being taught by Satan. God loves the truth. What horrible things crisis brings out in us. Some of you identify with Isaac. You have gone through a very difficult time and it exposed some stuff in your own heart you didn't know was there. And you're afraid that now you know it, you're a lot less spiritual than you thought you were. These things are startling. They're revelations. And many people spend a lifetime running from this reality, a reality that's lurking in their souls. We say it's not the real me, but if truth be told, crisis showed us the real us. And all of that brings us to the third test. It's the test of humility. Isaac failed this third test as well. When Abimelech confronts him, he's not humble. He simply explains, I was afraid. In other words, he's making excuses. That's the thing that perhaps defines us more than anything else. Will we own up to our shortcomings or will we explain them away? See, that's the question. I note that there are people in AA and they'll tell you there's no hope for an alcoholic until he or she makes an honest declaration of who they are. I think that's not only true of alcoholics, it's true of all of us. You see, you can't even get right with God until you come to the horrible and terrible truth that you're a sinner. No one ever came to Christ until they got so that they became alarmed at their own true spiritual condition before God. That's not only true of coming to Christ, it's true of growing in Christ. See, I know this about myself. When I first came to Christ, I was aware of some of my sins and I was grateful to Christ for his forgiveness in the cross. And then I began to grow and the Holy Spirit began to show me more sins than I had ever become aware of. Remember John Newton? He was the man who wrote Amazing Grace. Let me quote to you from another of his hymns. He wrote, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love in every grace, might more of his salvation know, might seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, in answer prayer for grace and faith. 
These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find all in me. (laughs) I think John Newton was right. God intends to help us grow in our holiness by devastating us through trials and showing us what is in our heart. That's the story of how God treated Isaac, and it is the story of how God treats you and me as well. But lest you despair, hear this. God did not abandon Isaac. Verse 12 and 13 say that God blessed him and he became wealthy. (laughs) Now, I'm going to say a lot more about that in the future. But let me say this, even though God doesn't promise to make us wealthy today, he does promise to keep on blessing his children even when he exposes our sin. Child of God, don't despair when you fail the trials that God sends. Take hope, for God is greater than your failures. God has shown you that you're unable to save yourself, that there's a lot more sin in you than you've ever imagined. But God has done this because he's gracious so that you would not look to yourself for salvation, but would continue to rely on him for his grace. That's the good news. You can navigate a crisis when you look to Christ. John, I'm interested in this whole idea of how we face trials. I think in, in one sense, we sense, uh, you know, that the trials will bring out the very best in us, how spiritual we are. But the reality is often trials bring out the very worst in us and help us recognize maybe how inadequate we are. Oh, my. I, I, I wish that in my own trials, Ben, that I had handled a great many of them better than I have. Um, but they have done exactly what God had designed them to do to expose uh, those things in myself that that I needed grace. Um, I've come to realize that if anything good ever happens, it will be because God will have been gracious to me far beyond anything that I could have accomplished on my own. And then, you know, when I think about that, isn't that what my trials were designed to do in the first place? So, you know, Ben, I've loved that uh, hymn by John Newton, I asked the Lord that I might grow. So, you know, the trials are sent by God and they do do something in us. And uh, in the end, we might say, thank you, Lord, for sending them, but it takes a while to get there. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us here again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Genesis right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, sharing the truth of the Bible has never been more important. And the efforts of Back to the Bible Canada, well, they earnestly strive to effectively meet that need every day. Through the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld and the many other ministry programs and resources made available nationally and globally, this ministry exists for one purpose, sharing the uncompromising good news of Jesus Christ. You know, this is our fiscal year end, a time when we make a special financial appeal to all those who support and listen to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Could I ask you to consider offering a special gift this month, perhaps a first-time gift, to support our fiscal year end goal of $325,000. Every dollar raised sustains and provides new opportunity to share the light of Christ in a dark world. 
Thanks in advance for your commitment to faithfully supporting Bible teaching and call us with your gift today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.